listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 227. Today, we're looking at fair washing in the wake of the brouhaha about Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Our guests will tell us about corporate social responsibility programs and why they fall short of their promises to protect workers in global supply chains. But first, the news. Essential workers have been both celebrated and exploited over the course of the past year and a half. And for immigrant workers, who constitute a major portion of the workforces of these so-called essential occupations, the demand for recognition and relief has reached a boiling point. In New York City last Friday, about 1,000 essential workers marched across the Manhattan Bridge to call for immigration reform, demanding a pathway to citizenship for undocumented essential workers, as well as the millions of other migrants who have been living in fear of deportation for years. Currently, there are several proposals for immigration reform under consideration in Congress. One bill, the Citizenship for Essential Workers Act, would grant a pathway to citizenship for workers in a number of designated essential occupations, including construction, healthcare, domestic work, and childcare. Another, more comprehensive bill would give legal status to so called dreamers or young people who are brought to the country without legal authorization. It would also give relief to people here on a humanitarian reprieve known as Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, and it would cover millions of other people who are undocumented, not just those working essential jobs. So far, the multiple legislative efforts to deliver immigration reform have stalled in this Congress, and frustration is mounting among immigrant community groups. The march, organized by Make the Road New York and other grassroots organizations, comes just as Democrats in Congress are preparing to try to shepherd immigration reform legislation through the budget reconciliation process to avoid getting thwarted by the filibuster in the Senate. With everything up in the air, though, some immigrant rights groups have turned to state-level measures and direct action. We've seen wildcat strikes launched by migrant agricultural and food processing workers, for example. And here in New York, thanks to massive organizing efforts across the state, Albany managed to pass a health and safety law that will protect immigrant workers and others from airborne respiratory diseases, as well as a relief fund for excluded workers, those who didn't qualify for federal pandemic relief. Still, much remains uncertain for the undocumented in their communities, despite the Biden administration's promises to advance immigration reform in Washington. I spoke with Sylvia Gaston, a domestic worker and an activist with Make the Road New York, who was at the rally on Friday. She talked about what essential workers like her really need from the government right now. We marched today so that our voices are heard by Congress, and especially President Biden and Senator Schumer, so that they pass immigration reform for us, but also for DACA recipients. Can you talk about the work that you do and why you came to represent essential workers today? I represent immigrant essential workers, especially the women who do domestic work and cleaning. Many essential workers are undocumented, and that's who I am marching for. And so what has work been like for you over the past uh, year and a half? Like, what have you been doing during the pandemic? As of 
I'll never forget the day, March 20, 2020. I received devastating news. I was let go of my cleaning jobs. I used to work seven days a week. Now, to this day, I'm only working one day a week. I constantly worry about my economic stability, about not having money. Have you been able to get any assistance from the federal government? Or I know that New York just recently passed an excluded workers fund. So is, is that going to help you? I didn't qualify for unemployment. When it comes to the Excluded Workers Fund, I would like to apply. I'm very happy because I know that the applications are going to open in August, and I hope that I'm eligible for the fund. So currently, there's been talk about immigration reform in Congress, and um, you know the the White House is, has been saying that they want to push for it, but it's it's uncertain what's going to happen. Um, how do you feel about the discussion about immigration reform in Washington? Do you have any hope? Uh, are you expecting anything? I have a lot of hope. I hope that Republicans and Democrats do get together and make sure that we pass immigration reform, that we're able to pass a law so that we can get our papers. How do you think essential workers like you have been treated so far um, by politicians? They have made good promises, but at the end of the day, they're just promises. They don't give us what we actually need, which is for the law to pass. That's why we must continue to push Congress. Is there anything else you want to say uh, or that you want people to know about the workers who came to the rally today? Like, what would you like people to know about? Um, what essential workers like you are going through right now? For the people that couldn't make it to the march today, I just want to share that we're fighting for everyone that we know, sending letters, making calls. I'm making calls to Senator Schumer and to local representatives to push forward and make sure that we're all included. I want those who couldn't make it to know that we're fighting for everyone. That was Sylvia Gaston, domestic worker and activist with Make the Road New York. Scabby the Rat lives. The beloved inflatable rat that you've no doubt seen around at rallies, pickets, and sometimes just looming outside a probably unethical employer has been given the stamp of approval by the Biden National Labor Relations Board. In the same week as Biden's choice for NLRB general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, was confirmed and sworn in, the board found that the use of scabby and banners targeting a secondary business was lawfully protected speech. More specifically, the board ruled that the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, was within its rights to have a scabby outside of a trade show attended by Lippert Components, a company that did business with McAllister Machinery, the company that the union was targeting. 
Trump's NLRB general counsel, Peter Robb, wanted the rat gone and had gone so far as to revive the complaint in order to try to have the rat found coercive. But Scabby lives on, thanks to a three-to-one ruling that upheld previous rulings at the board and in courts that Scabby does not violate labor law and cannot be considered an unfair threat or coercion. Scabby is, of course, a beloved labor symbol and has been since 1990, and while attempting to ban him wasn't the worst thing that Rob and the Trump administration did to workers by a long shot, this decision is a welcome sign that workers' power and culture matter to this board more than the hurt feelings of employers and employer-side lawyers. So we here at Belabored say, long live Scabby. It's been several years since the Me Too movement sent a tremor through workplaces around the world and got lots of people talking about sexual abuse as a labor issue. But today, workers are still dealing with the damage of sexual harassment on the job and have not much real recourse against an abusive employer or coworker. A new report by the Institute for Women's Policy and Research puts a finer point on what we already know by examining the collateral damage of sexual harassment on both the individual and economy-wide level. The researchers, who drew from social science research, as well as in-depth interviews with a small sample of workers, concluded that the financial consequences of sexual harassment can last across the survivor's lifetime, particularly in terms of job loss and unemployment, as people who have been victimized at work often lose work or are forced to transition to different jobs. In the process, workers may also bear the cost of having to retrain or obtain additional credentials for a new job. In addition, workers often end up losing retirement and health benefits. Researchers surmise that losing employer-sponsored health insurance forced many of those interviewed to forgo health care and therapy altogether because they were unable to afford it or to face high out-of-pocket costs, unquote. The study also found that sexual harassment exacerbates gender and income inequality. They write, quote, the lifetime costs of workplace sexual harassment and retaliation were particularly high for those pushed out of well-paid, men-dominated positions, reaching $1.3 million for an apprentice in the construction trades. While lower earnings and lower job quality in many women-dominated service sector jobs mean that the costs of harassment are lower, for one fast food worker forced out of her job, lifetime costs still totaled over $125,600, unquote. In some cases, women were pushed out of well-paying careers, including in fields dominated by men such as construction, trucking, and IT, into lower-paid or less regular employment. And you can imagine that in other situations, the fear of being pushed out of the job due to sexual harassment is a powerful incentive for workers to stay silent. The study found that some of the causal factors of sexual harassment at work are connected to other workforce inequities, particularly precarious working conditions, social isolation, patriarchal work structure, and a lack of bargaining power. They write, quote, individuals interviewed repeatedly cited similar circumstances, including work in men-dominated industries, in physically isolated workplaces, in situations of substantial power imbalance, including due to immigration status, and in industries with no clear channels for reporting harassment because of subcontracting, franchising, and other decentralized employment structures, unquote. In other words, everything that the neoliberal economy has done to structure the workplace to maximize profits has also done so at the expense of making workers more vulnerable to sexual harassment. Similarly, the potential remedies for sexual harassment are often inaccessible to workers or they're prohibitively costly. The causal factors for that, again, come down to disenfranchisement and exploitation. They write, quote, for every individual interviewed, the costs were magnified because those best positioned to help address the harmful behavior, supervisors, human resources staff, or colleagues, failed to act. 
or even worse, retaliated against the individuals. High costs of legal representation, lack of information, and uncertainty over immigration status left the large majority of those who experienced workplace sexual harassment and retaliation without legal recourse, unquote. None of this is completely new information, of course. The study does reveal two things, however. Number one, there's a dearth of comprehensive national research and data on the prevalence and impact of workplace sexual harassment. Number two, the intersection of sexual harassment and other forms of labor abuse and subjugation means that sexual harassment is just one manifestation of structural inequality, discrimination, and patriarchy, and one of the mechanisms by which these everyday injustices are meted out on the bodies and minds of workers. Over the last few months, you may have noticed a bunch of big corporations scrambling to demonstrate their sound ethical judgment, from Coca-Cola's Black Lives Matter ads to the special edition rainbow Lego set made especially for Pride Month. And just last week, Ben & Jerry's sparked a global hoopla by announcing that it would stop selling its ice cream in the occupied Palestinian territories, and a partial but significant capitulation to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. All these moves are exercises in corporate social responsibility, which typically takes the form of environmental and social ethics pledges, fair trade certification, or sweatshop-free sourcing initiatives. Sometimes these are referred to as multi-stakeholder initiatives in corporate speak, or MSIs. Basically, they aim to demonstrate that these are not rapacious, socially destructive, capitalist enterprises we're talking about, but rather good corporate citizens that give back to the community and strive to minimize their damage to society and to ecosystems. But when it comes to MSI protocols on labor rights, many of these initiatives are essentially designed as top-down schemes, largely controlled by the corporations that sponsor them or by business-friendly auditing systems that end up acting effectively as rubber stamps. Meanwhile, there's been a movement to create alternative supply chain labor protection systems that are worker-driven, putting the workers themselves in charge of setting and enforcing standards. These include the Fair Food Program of the Coalition of Mockley Workers in Florida, or the Milk with Dignity Program of the Vermont-based dairy workers group Migrant Justice. So what's the deal with MSIs, and how do we get justice on a global scale in our supply chains. First, we speak with Tyler Giannini. He's a board member of the research group MSI Integrity. They just put out a report detailing the many shortcomings of these programs and how they primarily serve as public relations vehicles while doing little to empower workers and communities. Give us an overview of the research that MSI Integrity has done and and why, uh, why the organization was created yeah, so maybe we start with what um, an MSI is, and an MSI is really a has a couple of different characteristics. One is that it brings together different stakeholders by its name. That's implied, right? Government actors, industry, um, and communities or rights holders, sometimes academics or specialists, into an entity that then is supposed to look at business and human rights. So, in particular, in this particular space, MSI Integrity was looking at business and human rights. And the implications of um, whether MSIs were doing effective work to, to promote and protect human rights. And that became relevant because about 20 years ago, these started to emerge. And in the 2000s, they've started to become the default 
way of dealing with business and human rights problems as a governance solution. Um, MSIs are voluntary initiatives. They're not government regulated. And um, nobody was really looking at whether they were effectively promoting and protecting human rights. And a lot of people weren't even asking that question. And so MSI Integrity really set out to look at that question. Are these things advancing human rights? Are they regressing human rights? And after 10 years of study um, and really engagement in the field, MSI Integrity um, came out with a report called Not Fit for Purpose. And essentially the conclusion, conclusion was that the grand experiment of MSIs was a failure because they were not doing several things. One, they were, ex- they were not centering workers or communities, the people that were most affected by uh, human rights violations of business. And second, they weren't really dealing with the power imbalances between the different stakeholders. Um, and over time, increasingly, MSIs were either captured entirely or largely by corporations. So they became kind of corporate entities as much as they were meant to be multi-stakeholder initiatives. Can you talk about some of the examples that your research uncovered um, of MSIs that had fallen short of what they had promised or had otherwise failed or um, been corrupted somehow? Yeah, so one of the things I think that's interesting is that you would say, so for example, I I said that the MSIs don't include um, the affected populations in their governing bodies. The study actually finds that only 13% do, and none of the studied MSIs include a majority of rights holders in their governing boards. None. So it's a very small percentage overall, and none have this kind of centering of um, rights holders or workers um, or communities. And these, the study really looks at 40 different MSIs. Now, MSIs are often associated with things like Fair Trade USA. If you're looking at stores, for example, and you're shopping in, in a supermarket, often there'll be certifications um, on them that say, this is a Fair Trade certified. That is often an MSI that's doing that work, but it's an industry with some other stakeholders that's driving that process as opposed to workers driving the process and monitoring it. Can you talk about specific MSIs that you looked at and what industries were they working in? What companies did they involve and how did they run in your view? Yeah, so so let's take a, a recent one um, that's that is um, well. I, I mentioned Fair Trade USA. This didn't get a lot of focus in in the report, but I think it's a, a relevant one um, because it's um, because of recent discussions around the dairy industry in the United States. So Fair Trade um, USA is a good example of this, and it contrasts with what I would call a worker driven social responsibility entity called Fair Food Program. So if we take Fair Trade USA, what you get is that on their website, for example, they have a portal to business um, and they have a lot of discussion for, for consumers, but there's not really a, a place for workers to engage in the same robust way. So it's pretty clear that the intent is for business to be um, and is the one that is, is centralized in, in this, the way it's set up. Another piece of that would be that they do have a grievance mechanism, uh, 
But the question is whether that's really accessible. And what I mean is, can workers really trust it? Can they engage with it? Um, and that's one of the findings of the not fit for purpose is that um, MSIs might have a grievance mechanism, but whether it's actually providing remedies sufficiently, um, that is not what is standard in these MSIs. And remedy is a core part of what you'd want from anything dealing with business and human rights, right? If you have worker complaints, you want to provide remedy. Um, and so the, the study itself is finding that MSIs are not a place where you can't rely on them to be providing remedies. You can't rely on them to provide a way of changing the power imbalance. Another dimension to Fair Trade USA is that they rely largely on social auditing um, systems. And through the years, what has become quite clear um, is that social auditors are often not really able to detect the human rights violations that you'd be concerned about with um, any industry. And so whether it's Fair Trade USA or the Fair Labor Association or the Round Table on Sustainable Palm Oil, social auditing is not really a mechanism that gets workers to come forward, make complaints, and then you can address them. Um, that's because of some structural problems, basically, of the way these things are set up, is that auditors are not always trusted. Um, spot auditing doesn't do the, the trick. There's fear of retaliation. Instead of having workers involved in the problems and solutions, these kind of setups as they're done through MSIs are not working for workers and to advance rights. That's the, the structural problem that the report's finding. These auditors are often commissioned by the company, right, um, who's at the top of the supply chain. So is there an inherent conflict of interest there? Well, that's a that's a great question. It's, it's the right question. You have different setups, um, and sometimes it would be by the company. Sometimes it would be the, by the MSI. And um, But it's not, depending on who's in that governing body, right? So this would be a, a difference. If the MSI um, hires the auditors as opposed to workers hiring the auditors, you get a real trust difference in the way that that auditor is going to be perceived by the workers or worker appointed representatives. I think that's one of the key points here is that it's not just workers being kind of consulted or being involved in a consultation, but to shift that power so that workers are actually in places of designing the system and then governing it. And that's the key difference, I think, between MSIs and more uh, community-centric or rights-holder-centric approaches is the place and power that is given to the workers and communities. It seems like MSIs emerged um, in the 90s and 2000s alongside um, the dramatic liberalization of trade policies everywhere and this expansion of global manufacturing supply chains. Um, it seems very much like part and parcel of this um, expansion in things like the, the garment trade and, and, um, and as well as um, the globalization of, of the food system. Um, so do you see MSIs as kind of a byproduct of um, this, this kind of um, neoliberal expansion of global markets? 
So I think there's been a dance through the years about whether um, industry is going to be regulated through voluntary approaches or whether states are going to do it, public regulation. And MSIs were kind of a new tool or a new spin on the, the way that volunteerism was approached. And part of that came up with the, the global um, neoliberal globalization that you're talking about. But it's also a longstanding debate that dates before that. And I think that's important here um, is that the, this was seen as an experiment, a, a way of thinking about, okay, can we bring industry to the table? That's sort of the idea. It's quite, um, in theory, sounds nice. We're going to bring different stakeholders together and we're going to have industry and communities and academics and states all together at the same table. Um, but really what you have then is that as part of that globalization, you have increased power of corporations. And then when they're brought to the table to remedy a situation that's come up because of a problem, um, it's different than monitoring them and holding and restricting their power. Instead, they're really at the table from the beginning. And that's one of the problems here is that the expanded power of globalization was not um, regulated through this process. Maybe not just um, food, not just garments, but another MSI that's gotten a fair amount of attention through the years is the Kimberly process. This is really certification of diamonds. And um, we've probably heard about blood diamonds, for example. And this was an effort to deal with that crisis. But instead of other parties coming together and saying, let's design something that's going to work for the affected communities to regulate corporations out of that crisis, the corporations were brought to the table too. And so they're there from the beginning. And that creates a conflict of interest when the potential perpetrator is at the table designing how to deal with the problem. Um, so I think that's part of what you're getting at here. And it is one of the fundamental flaws and why um, Not Fit for Purpose was really highlighting how you really need to shift this mindset so that um, the workers are involved in the design and that the corporations are not controlling the entire thing from the beginning. Is part of the problem here just that we have a, a, a lack of any kind of cohesive global governance when it comes to um global corporations. Um, you know, we have multinationals that um, are, you know, significantly more powerful than, you know, individual nation states that they do business with in many cases. Um, so does part of this reflect um, a lack of that kind of global legal infrastructure? Um, and also, I guess, the, uh, um, the, the weakness or absence of any kind of global labor movement that could really tackle this in a comprehensive way? Well, I, th I think the last 10 years has actually been an interesting time for global movements. Um, globalization, of course, was met with anti-globalization movements, which were often worker-driven. So while the trend around um, worker-driven uh, processes um, has diminished on the decades level, perhaps the pandemic is going to reignite union power in the coming decade. So these things swing over time. Um, there's no binding treaty to hold corporations to account right now. There's something called the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, but they're soft principles. 
and those are limited as well. Um, I'm involved in a project actually proposing to have additional principles that would center communities um, more in this field of business human rights, which has emphasized state agency, business agency, and then some remedies. But we think that you need a fourth piece to this, even a fourth pillar, which is community centric. Um, and that's really important part of, of the global movement that you're essentially saying needs to be ro more robust. Um, and I think that that's part of the equation here. I think another equation here is that um, one way of thinking about the problem here is that there hasn't been enough of what we would call small d democracy in the economic sphere. So corporations are normally set up not to share power and economic justice with communities. Um, that's unions advocate for that, but there are definitely models out there, which would shift the power so that workers would benefit more from, um, the source of their labor cooperatives, for example, or bringing workers into different ownership structures and stakeholder structures. And that would change internally within the corporation, some of the power structures as well. And so that's an important conversation too. Um, MSI Integrity is really focusing on that and they're, they're naming um, this as really a need to shift power. Shifting power is a big part of this. So that when the corporate management and unions come together, there's real negotiation and then real solutions that come from that. In a typical MSI, let's say in, you know, agriculture or something where you, know, you have um, workers that are working somewhere in the global south on a plantation or something like that, like what would their, what would their interaction be with an MSI? Would they even be aware that it's operating? Would they be briefed on how to utilize it? Um, would they have any, uh, any, um, uh, would they be incorporated into um, the administration of um, the agreement? How, how does it apply to their lives? <laughs> well, well, for for many many of the of the the stakeholders who are connected to these industries and these long supply chains that that you you just you mentioned earlier, um, the family farm, for example, in the cocoa industry or um, in, a, in the coffee industry would often have no idea about an MSI and be very disconnected. Would, would, um, MSI Integrity does, did a study which found that most of the time people were unaware of what MSIs were to the extent they might have heard of it. They would not know how to really engage with it. And I think this is the disconnect that you're talking about. If you think about alternatives, and there are some, there are some models. It's about getting those to be much more robustly um, scaled and um, thinking about ways that they can be replicated. There's a group, for example, out of Florida that's gotten a lot of attention, the Immokalee Workers, uh, the Coalition for Immokalee Workers. And they set up a system, a governing body um, that engaged with industry around agriculture then they're intimately involved in the grievance mechanisms and managing, implementing. They are the governing body. That's what a worker-driven system looks like. So it is possible to set these up. It's just a matter of doing it more often. Um, so while there's a disconnect for many, there are examples of places where workers or agricultural systems actually engage and set these systems up for solutions. So we have the models. It's a matter of getting them out there.
Yeah. And I think for both the Coalition of Mockley Workers and um, in Migrant Justice, which is a similar initiative that came out of Vermont and the dairy industry, it takes a huge amount of like organizing and just investment of time and energy into setting that up. In your report, you talk about the need to center workers in affected communities in that sort of multi-stakeholder governance structure, as well as corporate ownership, right? So I guess even in within the United States, right, it's it's a it seems like such a such an uphill battle for many of these workers. So I don't know. It seems like a, a tall order as long as we're living under this global capitalist system to press for workers voices um, to be incorporated into corporate governance. So like, how would that come about on a mass scale? How would it come about? Yeah. So I think there's a couple levels to that. One is I think there needs to be a mindset shift, right? Um, the, 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 the worst part of the, uh, of capitalism and the, ex- the extreme economic injustices that have just been brought to the fore, but we're always there um, with the pandemic People understand those. This is not really a a debated fact right now about whether capitalism is at its at it in the the extreme side of things exploitative. Um, That's not a debate. The question is how are you going to share? And so the the way to think about that is that from a business perspective, having less conflict with communities, having less conflict with um, workers, that conflict and the things that arise from it, it's quite costly. It's costly to reputation. It's costly to time. So there's a business interest in getting through that conflict or avoiding it and having a different solution. From the worker's perspective, there's also strong interest in not being in um, abusive situations and having your rights um, acknowledged. And so systems where you have either worker solutions or co-design solutions, another possibility that take hard work to get set up, but then I think are going to become much more sustainable once they're in place. If you really focus on that power dynamic, instead of something that's much more about lip service to process and not really incorporating communities. And one other thing here is that I think the, um, Micro justice, mill for dignity, um, what they're asking for in terms of their rights is not really something that is should be questioned. We're talking about asking for things like, can I have a day off a week? Uh, can I have the minimum wage? Can I be can uh, I not be abused at a work site? These are the kind of things that are the first step. But I think the vision long term is to really make. Um, capitalism less exploitative and much more able to share resources so that people can have living incomes, um, not just living wages, but really living incomes so that they can have sustainability and security. That's core to human dignity and human rights. And that's what um, really this long-term effort's about and what the workers are really asking for. Uh, many of our listeners are um, involved in the labor movement or um, or are involved in you know, worker worker rights struggles. I feel like the way many Americans interact with MSIs is primarily as consumers. 
what should people who are involved in labor organizing or just involved with uh, workers' rights in general, how should they be viewing MSIs and alternatives to MSIs uh, in terms of the type of campaigns or initiatives that we can engage in in our own communities here or um, through other types of direct action? I think there's a couple of different things here. One would be that um, an educated consumer is really important. Right. So the difference between fair food program and fair trade USA, unless you're educated, you're not going to know that there could be a difference, but there's pretty big differences as we've discussed. And so to educate yourself about what is really doing work to ensure that human rights and worker centered approaches, community centered approaches are part of the process. That's one thing consumers can do. The other thing I think is that through that process of education, people can really understand which corporations, um, which cooperatives, which approaches are thinking about ways to share the wealth. Um, and those are the things that people really want, right? People want to have economic justice. People across the world um, want to have the opportunity to come out of poverty. And consumers want the, what they're buying to support those kind of values. And so to the extent that you can see, okay, this is endorsed by the fair food program. This is endorsed by migrant justice and milk with dignity. And you understand that that is an approach that is centering workers and also building their power and their wealth while also having sustainable corporations and cooperatives then you become an active participant in the buying situation as a consumer. That was Tyler Giannini of MSI Integrity. Next, we speak with Anna Canning, campaigns manager for the Fair World Project, a group that helps organize worker-driven social responsibility initiatives that serve as an alternative to standard corporate-controlled MSIs. Recently, the group was one of dozens that called out the certification group Fair Trade USA for launching a so-called Fair Trade Dairy Program, which many have criticized as corporate-friendly, quote-unquote, fair washing. We kind of come out in a, a, here at Fair World Project, kind of come out with a variety of positions on like specific labels, depending on like really what they're, how they're built up. You know, and one of the key things that we're always looking for is, are the people that this is supposed to support, are they at the table defining the agenda and the solutions? And that's, you know, a really big distinction that plays out across so many of the labeling initiatives is that you have some where, like, the people who are supposed to be benefiting are like building the standard and have a required seat on the board. You know, there's like a certification called small producer symbol that you barely ever see on the shelf, right? But it's developed by Latin American coffee farmers for like a really specific purpose to recognize small scale farmers as in opposition to plantation agriculture. And, you know, that like as a purpose serves its purpose purpose and it's built for that and those are the people in the driver's seat but you know i think overall what we see with voluntary certification is that um 
there's a fundamental difference between envisioning people as rights holders or as benefits of a company's corporate social responsibility programming, right? And like workers' rights are essential. Those are human rights. While corporate social responsibility like really puts the focus on the company doing good and then like hopefully some of that good stuff will trickle down to people that they that work for them or you know are further down the line in their supply chain. And I think what we've really seen over the past 20 years or something is this development of ethical certification as kind of company reputation management as opposed to you know, helping edge along some kind of broader transformation of the system. And there's really a growing body of research that's starting to back what we've been saying for a while, which, you know, about the need for intended beneficiaries to really be at the table and in the driver's seat, which is why we've been really adamant calling out Fair Trade USA's dairy standard. Um, because in this case, the opposite is happening there, that dairy workers and workers' rights groups have been opposing this whole process from the start. I mean, it did develop as a response to um, pretty significant public pressure, I, I, I believe, you know, and, and uh, various um, human rights-related scandals that were going on in corporate supply chains. Um, why do you think that um, a program that least at the beginning may have at least purported to have pure intent uh, ended up taking this specific form. Yeah, right. Like, I think we've seen the growth of corporate social responsibility in a variety of forms, like, you know, back in the 90s, like Nike having huge sweatshop exposés happening all the time. And then there's been really a development of, you know, within that garment industry, like companies making all kinds of, you know, codes of conduct and all of that. Um, and then, you know, I came up actually through the coffee industry and there you had, you know, small scale coffee farmers organized in their cooperatives, like really kind of rooted within like the Latin American cooperative movement and the like, visions of, well, you know, an anti-colonial lens and, you know, really seeing plantation agriculture as part of this industrial system that they were coming up against. And then the decision was made to, um, you know, take the sort of solidarity buying that existed through really limited channels to buy those farmers' products and then bring them to a mainstream market and give some additional volume to those small-scale farmers and allow people to see like, oh, those are farmers I want to support, right? So that's like the origin of it is this kind of idea of solidarity buying within the fair trade context specifically. And, you know, I think that that's super mixed or super interesting, really, because I think that, you know, we have throughout history seen the ways that, you know, there's a power in worker-led boycotts, for example, to support their negotiations with companies. But like so often ethical labeling has really kind of watered down that sort of solidarity effort into, you know, what is called, quote unquote, conscious consumerism. 
And instead of focusing on all of the ways that people have power in their labor, in their communities, it distills all that down to purchasing power, which really then just serves to continue the status quo. Ethical sourcing is kind of parallel to ethical consumerism, right? It's the idea that we can select, you know, the best ones out of the bunch and then somehow we can feel maybe less bad (laughs) about the various human rights violations that we may be complicit in by supporting the entire, this entire sort of uh, global economic system. (laughs) Right. And I think you see that that's like, it's gone from being like this solidarity vision to really like kind of going through the, I don't know, the neoliberal meat grinder, right. And becoming like all about, personal responsibility, personal choice. You're the hero who is like saving the poor farmer elsewhere by making this choice. And, you know, it's very much aligns with like the environmental, I think the environmental um, analogy there is right. Like bring your own bag, you know, use this straw and then, you know, all the other consequences of our extractive economy are, you know, off your shoulders. You buy a Prius or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so I think like there's a good intention there and it really runs up against this much larger systemic problem. And, you know, that's why we're super critical also, I think, of like really weak labels like this is that we've seen so many times where a weak label can really just like help dilute then and kind of bring an end to momentum and consumer pressure aligning with, you know, worker or small scale farmer demands and just kind of papering over the exploitative status quo and making it look good. If you go back in history, I suppose um, you will see that originally rights violations in the supply chain were often dealt with first or confronted first by um, worker-led groups and movements, right? Um, It's kind of how we got the labor movement. So, um, and yet you look at the language of these ethical sourcing initiatives and while they reference you know, workers and, and rights, there's really very little, little reference, if any, to anything like um, a worker-led movement, which I suppose is not surprising considering that it's this is often couched as, you know, a corporate public relations exercise. But um, I don't know, what do you think of how this idea of ethical supply chains has become completely, like, largely detached from the idea of a labor movement? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, when I think about a lot, because in our work, we tend to move kind of between like food justice movement and natural foods movement, and then uh, like worker groups. And it's super interesting because there is like a disconnect between those conversations happening. And, uh, you know, you would think that they could all they're all working towards like good ethical supply chains, maybe, but the ways that those questions are tackled are really different. And I mean, as to why that's happening, I mean, I think what we've really seen over the past number of years is like this kind of co-optation of the idea of, you know, an ethical supply chain that is 
tweaking current power uh, um, imbalances and, you know, instead of like really addressing the big things going on, right, like corporate consolidation, trade policy, these macro trends that are squeezing farmers and workers across so many industries, you know, and instead of addressing those big things, it's more like tweaking those edges to make something like a little better and to come up with those reforms. If we look at the role of organizations like Fair Trade USA, which your group has been focused on, um, and and their work, um, I mean, do you see them as kind of just enablers of this system? Because if you if you look at the way they talk about themselves, I mean, they see themselves as sort of an auditing authority or having some kind of oversight um, power. How independent are they? Or how aligned are they with with uh, business interests? Yeah, I mean, I would say that they are pretty aligned with business interests. Um, and <laughs> I don't even think we have a, a time to go into the question of like, independence, because that like within the world of third party certification, that has like a lot of meaning. But, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen is they really made a choice maybe 10 years ago to like, instead of focusing on, you know, small, like high bar uh, companies who are really like focused with their business model in making change within the system to really like focusing on going after the big companies, which is where like the licensing revenue is. Right. And like they, you know, if you look at where they get their funding from, like there's definitely like large buyers within supply chains are both paying them big licensing fees. And then uh, also like their foundations are pouring money in there. Uh, and, you know, what we've really seen over the past couple of years is that they have this super disturbing trend of certifying farms, like where there are ongoing labor disputes that a couple of years ago, like when the Driscoll boycotts were really hot in the U.S. and Mexico, uh, Fairtrade USA went and certified Driscoll's berries and, you know, just like gave them that nice bit of whitewashing. And then we saw like, I think you actually covered some around Fife's melon plantations in Honduras and, you know, they went in there and like certified melon plantation with 10 years of documented labor and human rights violations. And it took, you know, global campaigning to get them to reverse that. And they still are certifying plantations owned by that same ownership group. And, you know, now we see with Chobani, like, Farm workers in New York have been calling on them on Chobani to negotiate since 2017. And, you know, those worker organizations like led by Workers Center of Central New York and have really done like so much powerful organizing there and won these protections for workers, farm workers in New York that are pretty rare within the US. And so the workers are really building power there. And then Shabani, or I mean, Fairtrade USA then comes in and like rolls out this program, which really feels like timed and timed and aimed to undermine that kind of organizing and like real power building. Yeah. Um, I remember when New York farm workers passed. Um, 
passed a whole law <laughs> like to protect themselves. Um, so it does sort of call into question uh, what exactly the role of this, um, this scheme would be. But, um, but, you know, you said that this is just maybe one of many examples of how Fairtrade USA sort of claims to be um, acting on workers' behalf and doesn't quite end up matching their rhetoric. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. And, you know, I think that if you listen to all of their pitches and stuff, it's really aimed at business. And, you know, there's so much talk that is like, it's going to improve your, you know, marketing among millennials, because millennials care about things. And, right, like, it's going to help you, like, position yourself as ethical, and kind of, it's a marketing pitch. And I think, you know, we've seen that, like, turned all the way up with this dairy situation where there was yogurt on the shelves for two months before they even got around to like, oh, here's the final standard. You know, if this label means something like, oh, there's actually no final standard that backs that up. So it's so much marketing and so little substance. But, uh, I guess it <laughs> doesn't, doesn't speak well of millennials if, <laughs> if they think I think we're going to fall for that one. But um, the so in terms of um, alternatives to this kind of um, this kind of corporate led um, ethical sourcing uh, concept, I mean, you, you know, the, the, the big chunk of your work that you devote to helping workers organizations is trying to develop, you know, worker led schemes that can uh, check human rights violations in the supply chain, right? So like, you know, to a lay person, it probably looks a lot like, you know, these corporate auditing schemes, right? Because we're talking about we have an agreement between a company and the workers and there's some sort of enforcement and standards. So like how does the worker-led approach differ from what we often see in the corporate realm? There's a couple things that really are key in like making that distinction between what's more marketing and what's actually making change. And one of those is like, who's at the table, right? Like who's in the lead? Who is this supposed to benefit? Um, and, you know, another thing that I think uh, where you really see a weakness in this Fair Trade USA standard specifically is, you know, one of the arguments that gets made for voluntary certifications are that they can help fill regulatory gaps that, you know, we were just talking about like New York farm workers, you know, forging ahead and they now have, because of their organizing, better labor law than exists for farm workers in a whole lot of the rest of the country. Um, but, you know, what we see in this standard that just got rolled out is that it doesn't actually fill the gaps. It lowers the bar and brings it down, you know, compared to the uh, international standard they have, it lowers the bar to bring it in line with U.S. law. And we know that U.S. law for farm workers is abysmal, that they're exempt from a lot of like overtime rules, uh, organizing protections, all of these things. Uh, so, you know, 
the standards, like who's in the lead on the standards, the strength of the standards is a big difference. Uh, And then, you know, enforcement mechanisms, that there's been a lot of research that shows that, you know, an annual audit is really not a strong way to protect workers' rights. Um, You know, and like, just, I think that we could all kind of imagine that, like from our own jobs, right? Like, you're sitting there one day and some person you've never seen before, like the boss shows them in and they come to your desk or, you know, whatever your workplace is and like start asking you questions. Like, especially if you already don't trust your manager, like, are you going to trust this person who shows up with them? And like, how do you know you're not going to get retaliated against for talking? Right. And so there's all of these things that without, like some kind of a strong organization for workers to build their own power and protect themselves in some way. Like that's a real weakness of a lot of voluntary certification. And, you know, I mean, the Fair Trade USA standard is just like such a joke for this, right? Like if you, you know, if there's something going on in your workplace and you want to report it to the certifier, like, you know, your boss is harassing you or something like you have to go through an on-farm process first with management before you can even escalate it to the certifier. So, you know, and then if you want to do that, then the next step, like you go to their website and there is, it's so hard to find where you'd actually do that, you know, and that's for me. And I'm like a person who's fluent in English, who's paid to spend time sitting on my computer and like looking at this stuff, right? You can find like business products, but there's nothing for workers, which I think is just really indicative of the whole thing. Like it's easier to find a recipe than it is to file a complaint on Fairtrade USA's site. And so it really shows you where the, where the emphasis is and who the intended beneficiaries are again. And so you see like with a lot of worker led sort of initiatives that they're going to think of both, you know, they're going to have stronger standards often because they know the things that impact their workplace and are dangerous to them. They're also then if you have, you know, some kind of a worker organizing situation, I'll say, you know, to do that kind of peer-to-peer training, know your rights uh, training, that one of the key things about exercising your rights is like knowing that you have them in the first place. Um, And then finally, enforcement mechanisms, you know, that an annual audit isn't enough. Um, And, you know, I think that I was just talking a few minutes ago about the Fife's case. And I think that you really see there also like the lack of consequences that, you know, there's very, very little like the the thing that Fairtrade USA holds out is the idea that uh, this is like a, a marketplace carrot and, you know, millennials will buy your product and whatever. But, you know, what you see in consequence or in actuality is they're able to have that logo on some of their melons. And, you know, I've seen them like in Whole Foods, there's a big mountain. It's like fair trade melons, Guatemala on this one side. And then, you know, there's the Honduras ones and you don't really even notice that it's all the same display. Right. So I think that those are some of the real key things when thinking about some of those distinctions between the two models. 
Um, and overall, um, I know that you have done Fair World Project has kind of worked on some of these programs um, adjacent to organized labor and uh, kind of, you know, in, in tandem with organized labor. So like, what is the, what, what role might unions play in some of these programs? Um, you know, I, I know that, for instance, uh, we have things like the Coalition of Mockley Workers who are organizing farm workers, but um, not doing it within a formal union structure. And so you, you um, and, and migrant justice as well, which is working in the dairy industry in Vermont. Um, so uh, where, you know, given, given the rather uh, massive constraints, you know, legal and bureaucratic that, uh, that come with, um, you know, uh, formally unionizing any kind of workplace or industry, um, what what kind of gap do you think um, these worker-led initiatives might fill? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are doing a really smart job of, of navigating the legal nightmare that the U.S. is for uh, labor protections and kind of just doing an end run around the whole, like, you need a formal recognition process. You know, I don't think that that's the only model. I think that, you know, you see, like, I'm in the Pacific Northwest and kind of north of me, you know, you see, like, Familia Unidas Por Justicia has done a really amazing job, like actually forming an independent farm worker union and then kind of fighting after forming their union to then push through, push for more labor protections at the state law level. And, you know, they're now like actually building their own worker co-op, which I think is like a really interesting model if you're thinking about like justice for people working in the food chain in general. Uh, it doesn't address, you know, massive global supply chains for sure. But, you know, I think that there's also really interesting work being done there, like thinking about, you know, there's nothing to stop actually recognized formal unions from also, you know, borrowing some from that model that you see in initiatives like Migrant Justice is Milk with Dignity or Coalition for Immokalee Workers, right? And like going ahead and trying to get binding contracts that way. I can think of a couple cases where they haven't made it there yet. So maybe I won't like mention that, but that there are definitely people thinking about ways to do that even, you know, internationally. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Anna Canning, Campaigns Manager for the Fair World Project. The Frito-Lay workers have ended their strike in Topeka, Kansas, with a deal that ends the back-to-back 12-hour suicide shifts. Union officials described the ratification vote as close, but nevertheless, the workers did ratify an agreement that ends the suicide shifts, guarantees them a day off per week, and provides a pay rise. But the conditions of the plant remain horrifying, despite the company owned by PepsiCo making plenty of money. 
Friend of the show, Alex Press, wrote a great piece at Jacobin about the strike titled Frito-Lay Workers Are On Strike For Their Lives. Her piece was written before the strike ended, but nevertheless, wanted to talk about it this week because it does a pretty good job of laying out why the workers were on strike in the first place. She begins, quote, at the Frito-Lay production plant in Topeka, Kansas, workers are subjected to something called suicides, shifts in which they come in for eight hours, are forced to work four more hours, and then are called in four hours early, leaving them only eight hours off between shifts. This is how the company forces overtime to the point that many of those workers say they work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, with some not having had a day off in five months, weekends included, end quote. The strike lasted three weeks, and the workers described really horrifying conditions. Alex writes, quote, And workers' mental health isn't their only concern. When a coworker collapsed and died, you had us move the body and put in another coworker to keep the line going, writes Sherry Renfro, one of the striking workers, in an open letter to Frito-Lay. The company says it wholly rejects that allegation, but Renfro is not the only one who has raised it. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration is currently investigating an incident that took place in May at the facility and has previously fined the plant for cases involving amputation and vehicular accidents. No wonder workers set up a skeleton on the picket line with a sign that reads, Working Us to the Bone. At the Topeka plant, production has only increased during the pandemic. Whereas people were used to working overtime around holidays, they say they are now being pushed their limits year-round as people across the United States up their intake of the products made, packaged, and shipped out of Topeka. Lay's potato chips, Tostitos, Cheetos, Sun Chips, Fritos, Doritos. The result for the workers was misery. For the company, it was more than $4.2 billion in sales, partially responsible for a 14% spike in revenue for its parent company, PepsiCo, a Fortune 500 company with a rising stock, end quote. Many of the workers, Alex notes, make under $20 an hour and haven't seen a raise in a decade. The company prefers, she writes, small bonuses that keep the pay scale from rising. During the pandemic, managers stayed home while workers kept going, some saying they got no hazard pay at all or just an extra $100 a week for a few weeks. And this summer's heat waves went by with no air conditioning in the plant. A worker told Alex, quote, at 7 a.m., our warehouse is 100 degrees. We don't have air conditioning. We have cooks in the kitchen on the fryers that are 130 or 140 degrees, making chips and sweating like pigs. Meanwhile, the managers have AC. End quote. The workers voted 353 to 30 to authorize the strike in June, but it only gained real national attention later as the workers remained out and eventually boycott calls reached social media. Alex writes, quote, while the local hasn't issued a formal call for a boycott, some workers at the Topeka plant are calling for exactly that. Per McCarter, the palletizer, Quote, we would rather nobody buy any Frito-Lay products, Fritos, Doritos, Tostitos, Funyuns, Cheetos, all those, while we're on strike. We make all of those in Topeka, Kansas. We also would rather nobody buys PepsiCo products while we're on the line. PepsiCo is the owner of Frito-Lay. With support for such a call present on the picket line, anyone concerned with the ability of their fellow human beings to survive should abide by that request. These workers are fighting for their lives and they need all the support they can get. Workers are also asking the public to call PepsiCo's board of directors to urge them to bargain a fair and reasonable contract. A local magazine, 785, has also set up a fund to help pay strikers water utility bills, end quote. 
The workers told reporters that the company was punishing them to make them vote out the union, that it did not give them the kind of family leave workers at other non-union plants received. It's unclear that with the deal, conditions will change all that much. One guaranteed day off a week at a union shop? But hopefully the workers see some improvement. And in the meantime, it's probably worth another discussion of why manufacturing, even food manufacturing strikes, seem so hard to win these days. And my pick for ARG is, as devastating plant shutdown looms in West Virginia, national outrage is hard to find by Hamilton Nolan in In These Times. And I also wanted to cite Laura Flanders' coverage of this on The Laura Flanders Show. It's called Big Pharma versus the People, the fight to save America's largest generic drug manufacturer. This is, in many ways, an all-too-typical story of a factory shutting down somewhere in America. But the impending shutdown of the Viatris plant in Morgantown, West Virginia, reverberates well beyond the borders of this modest city. The factory, which has been in operation since 1965, is reportedly the largest of several hundred facilities that manufacture generic pharmaceuticals in the U.S. It was created through a merger of the drug makers Mylan and Upjohn in 2019, and as with many mergers, the new company came in looking to cut costs or seek efficiencies, as they say in the business. And not surprisingly, they've decided to do it on the backs of workers. Roughly 1,400 or 1,500 middle-class jobs are due to be offshored, like much of West Virginia's economic decline, the story of the Viatris plant reflects how the past few decades of deindustrialization, neoliberal trade policies, and growing inequality have plagued once prosperous towns and cities nationwide. And it seems all the more absurd in light of the global pandemic, which has exposed the weaknesses in our preparedness for a public health disaster on this scale. A major part of that preparedness is the capacity to produce medicines domestically, rather than rely on brittle international supply chains that have failed so spectacularly over the past year and a half. However, Nolan writes, quote, though the coronavirus made many politicians talk about the need for America to strengthen its own supply chain at home to avoid relying on foreign countries for medicines and pharmaceutical supplies, the union's calls for the Biden administration to invoke the Defense Production Act to take over this plant that makes generic pharmaceuticals seem to have fallen on deaf ears. And on a raw political level, it would seem like the closure of a major factory in West Virginia, a state that has served as a political football for the past five years, and that is now home to Joe Manchin, the Senate's single most powerful member, would offer a prime opportunity for the Democratic-controlled federal government to score points in a red state, prove that Democrats can in fact deliver for the workers that Donald Trump paid lip service to, and throw a bone to Manchin all at once, unquote. But apparently, it's not to be, and the closure is still scheduled to happen in the coming weeks. The funereal scene that Nolan paints of the plant's waning days evokes memories of the famous carrier plant that Trump turned into a national icon and a giant PR exercise on the campaign trail. When the factory was set to close, triggering social media outrage, the Trump campaign seized on the workers' plight with a brilliant marketing ploy, branding then-candidate Trump as the savior who could rescue carrier workers from the impending layoffs. While not all the workers at the plant brought into the Messiah image he painted, what mattered was the media optics of this populist mogul sweeping in and convincing the bosses to keep carrier jobs in the U.S., supposedly. The press lapped up the drama of Trump's grand scheme to protect American workers. And as Christopher Martin pointed out in his excellent book, No Longer Newsworthy, the media narrative helped seal Trump's image as a champion of working-class America. Of course, hundreds of jobs were still lost at the plant despite Trump's boasts, but by the time that became evident, Trump had already milked the carrier story for all its marketing value on the way to the White House. 
But currently, Democrats have done little to protect the Viatris workers, even though the Biden administration is arguably better placed to actually help them than Trump was with respect to the carrier workers. Pharmaceutical manufacturing capacity is presumably part of the nation's critical infrastructure. In the midst of a global pandemic, you can make a good public interest case for keeping those 1,500 or so jobs. But the lack of political interest here appears to have trumped the public interest in preserving this essential workforce. Maybe it shouldn't surprise anyone here why working class voters have flipped from blue to red in places like West Virginia in recent elections. Mike Oles, an organizer with the Bernie-inspired organization Our Revolution, who has been campaigning on behalf of the plant's workers, pointed out that the company planned to shift operations to India and Australia. Quote, we can support a state that's transitioning from fossil fuels, he said. Why wouldn't we try to keep pharmaceuticals in the state? Unquote. In an interview with Laura Flanders, Joe Goods, head of the union United Steelworkers Local 8957, which represents hundreds of these workers, lamented that despite their efforts to reach out to the White House, to West Virginia elected representatives, including Joe Manchin, and even to the AFL-CIO, quote, there's been a deafening silence in Morgantown, West Virginia. Another twist in this plot is that Joe Manchin's daughter was actually the CEO of Mylan, the company that owned the factory before Viatris took over. West Virginia is better known for coal mines than for pharmaceuticals, but the fact that this plant represented a socially useful enterprise rather than a merely extractive one, and that it embodied perhaps the type of industrial diversity that West Virginia has desperately needed for generations, makes this loss especially painful. The sense of anger and betrayal really comes through in Flanders's and Nolan's reporting. And given that this state has also been hugely damaged by the opioid crisis, which is rooted in Big Pharma's relentless and deceptive marketing of highly addictive drugs, the closure of this plant just underscores how the pharmaceutical industry's ethical breaches have touched the lives of West Virginia's working class in so many ways, as workers, as patients and consumers, and as citizens whose voices are continually drowned out by corporate power. The loss of the plant, coming at the end of a year and a half of such unspeakable pain for West Virginia, will leave an open, festering wound that really shows why people here feel betrayed by the political class. There may be no cure for this and other tragedies brought about by the churn of global capitalism, but what workers really wanted from their elected officials was a little bit of hope. And that, like good jobs, is sadly in short supply in Morgantown. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Natasha and to Colin for making us sound good. And we'd like to take this opportunity to remind you to please consider supporting us on Patreon if you value our independent journalism. It takes a lot of resources to put out these episodes every other week, and we really appreciate all the support that you've given us over the years. And we hope to keep growing. And if you support us on our Patreon, you can also get some really cool swag designed by the eminent movement artist Molly Crabapple. That's patreon.com slash belabored. You can find all of our past episodes at descentmagazine.org. And you can also support us by becoming a subscriber to Descent Magazine. And of course, we'd love your feedback. Please let us know if you're an essential worker who feels left behind by the government's relief efforts or public health policies. Let us know if you are excited about Scabby the Rat getting the green light from the National Labor Relations Board. And let us know if you have any questions or suspicions about a corporate social responsibility campaign that you've come across. Let us know by emailing belabored at descentmagazine.org, or you can get us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. Thanks for listening, and over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. 
Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.